Um, and to all of you, thank you for joining uh, us. I guess this is the only time I'll ever say this in my life, but it's a good thing we're on Zoom because I heard about the weather uh, <clears throat> in New York City and of course all around the country. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but today it was 80 degrees and sunny uh, in Florida and I'm, I was looking out my window at palm trees all day, but uh, don't mean to rub that in. But uh, great to be back at Francis, Francis Tavern. Uh, this is one of my absolute favorite places to visit and love coming there whenever I'm in New York City. I uh, encourage all of you when COVID is behind us, if you haven't already, <clears throat> be sure to visit uh, the tavern and museum. The food's great, the museum is great. I absolutely love being here. Of course, it was uh, December 4th, 1783, when George Washington was there with all of his senior aides and, and did his farewell when he told them to take me by the hand and, and said his farewell. So a lot of history at uh, Francis Tavern. And I was looking around at everybody beforehand and I see some friends, some family, and I even see a former student out there. So uh, there we go. Uh, all right, everybody. So I'm gonna share screen and we'll jump into this. Uh, ba, 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 ba. And there we are. So um, <clears throat> this is the name of the book, George Washington's Final Battle. And uh, my favorite part of these programs is always the Q&A. So absolutely have at me during the Q&A. So before we jump into the main part of this, I have to get some housekeeping out of the way. And that is this. Every time I've talked about George Washington in my 30-year career, somebody uh, asked me a question. Did George Washington cut down the cherry tree? So there you see it on the top left. You know the story. Uh, George's father, Augustine, uh, bought him an axe or a hatchet uh, when he was a little boy. He was six. Of course, today, if you buy a six-year-old kid an axe, the Department of Children and Families comes and arrests you. But um, George then hacks apart a cherry tree that was part of his father, Augustine's orchards. And Augustine comes out and says, uh, George, did you kill my cherry tree, is what he said. And George says, I cannot tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Uh, now, uh, of course, George was caught red-handed with his hatchet in his hand. Um, and I think I would worry more if my son or daughter said, father, I cannot tell a lie, uh, than if they just cut down the cherry tree. That makes George a pretty precocious little bugger, right, everybody? Uh, but then Augustine says back to George, that's okay, because in telling me the the truth, you have repaid me a thousand times over what uh, the fruit from that tree could have repaid me. Uh, is the story true? Sad to say, it's not. Uh, we've been hearing this story for over 200 years and generations of children are taught this story. It was actually made up by um, a preacher turned bookseller uh, named Parson Mason Locke Weems. Uh, George Washington would die on December 14, 1799. And uh, Weems wanted to take advantage of that by having a book published. Uh, the problem was the book is this thick with no illustrations. Uh, what they did back then, since they didn't have Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble, they piled the book up on a wagon. And in the fall and spring, when the weather was okay, they, uh, they rode up and down the Eastern seaboard and sold the books. Uh, unfortunately, the book didn't sell. So Weems goes back and decides he's gonna make it up himself. So he pretty much makes up his own book. Around the fifth edition of the book in 1806, uh, this story of the cherry tree uh, appears. So May, uh, Weems made it up. He liked those bedtime stories, little moral vignettes, uh, like Aesop's fables and things of that effect. The other question I'm asked all the time is on the lower right, did George Washington have wooden teeth? No, he didn't have wooden teeth. That would be rather silly. Uh, and we're, we're sure of this because a couple sets of his dentures survive. There's one of them. We also have letters from Washington to his London merchant, Robert Carey, C-A-R-Y, ordering teeth and complaining about how poorly they fit. We also have letters back and forth between Washington and his dentist, uh, Dr. John Greenwood. And in the letters, uh, we know the teeth were made of ivory, typically hippopotamus ivory, gold, springs and contraptions, uh, human and horse teeth laid into them. Uh, ouch, uh, not very good. And um, Washington at once writes to Dr. Greenwood is complaining that he's been drinking, he said, so much port wine that the teeth uh, stained and turned uh, dark uh, and they look like wood. That's uh, where that comes from. So housekeeping out of the way, let's jump into our, our story. So um, I wrote this book uh, largely for two reasons. One is this, 
we all love our capital city. I love the capital city. Uh, my son is a student uh, in the capital city. Uh, we love the uh, tree-lined mall, the world-class museums, the touching memorials and monuments to heroes, uh, the majestic government buildings. But the kicker is this, most people don't know the story of how the capital city came to be and why it was located where it was located. So I wanted to tell that story. And of course, it was George's city, not just named after him today, but in every sense of the word, uh, Washington from A to Z was involved in every aspect of the city. If for not, not for him, it uh, wouldn't have happened. The second reason why I wrote the book is we know all about Washington. I mean, entire forests have been felled to fill the pages of books on George Washington. Any school child knows that Washington was heroic and stoic. He was the general that won the war. He was honest and he was a big, strong man. Um, but there's two aspects of Washington's character that I think are essential and we really don't understand it. One, uh, Washington was a visionary. Uh, and that's definitely not a part of most uh, works on Washington. His vision for this nation, his vision for the capital city was more impressive than that of all the other framers. And what's remarkable is when you think of the framers, this is an incredibly well-educated, uh, well-read, well-traveled, one of the most impressive groups of people to ever gather. The one among them that was different and was not well-educated, well-traveled, uh, well-read was Washington. Um, but Washington uh, was forced his whole life because he wasn't so formally educated to be innovative, to be creative. You know, he, he didn't have a military education, so he was literally making it up on the battlefield as he was going through. But interestingly, it wasn't any one of the brilliantly well-read or educated framers, uh, classically read. It was Washington who came up with this vision uh, for the capital city. So he was a visionary. The other trait was Washington could be a political player. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a remarkable book called A Team of Rivals, which provided a new look at Lincoln. We all knew that Lincoln was honest and humorous and humble, but we didn't know what a political chess master he was. Well, the same with Washington. Washington is always depicted uh, kind of monolithically as this uh, stoic person who rose above politics and wouldn't want to dirty his hands in politics. That's not true. Uh, Washington could, could get down in the mud. Uh, he could lobby. He could swap votes. He could compromise when it was for something he felt strongly about. And there's no better example of Washington's vision and him just getting down in the mud and playing raw politics than the issue of building the capital city. So uh, I have a quote here at the top of my screen from Washington, which I really think goes to the sense that he understood that what he was working on was something new and something larger than life. And that was, he wrote, with our fate, will the destiny of unborn millions be involved? Uh, so Washington had a couple of goals. I wanna read you, uh, this is something I've only done once before in my 30 year career. I wanted to read a short excerpt of, um, from the book to kind of set the tone, then I'll get into the points that I'm trying to make. So here's a short excerpt. The remarkable events and political struggles that led to the creation of our capital city are not well known. Rather, the founding debates about the city's location, design and size are often omitted from the pages of textbooks, at times ignored by scholars and generally taken for granted by the American public. Yet, these very same issues prove to be even more contentious for the framers than the debates at the Constitutional Convention over a system of governance. In fact, on several occasions, this, what I call the other founding debate, nearly tore the young nation apart. General Washington emerged victorious from the Revolutionary War and was the fledgling republic's most revered citizen. After the long conflict, he looked forward to a quiet retirement from public life. As he wrote, domestic tranquility under vine and fig, but his work was not done. The new experiment in popular government for which he had shed blood was a work in progress. Indeed, it was on shaky ground. It had become immediately apparent to Washington that running a constitution would be more challenging than winning a war for the chance to frame one. And doing so without a permanent capital city was hardly the way to go about it. 
Washington would need every bit of his considerable esteem and surprising political shrewdness to convince his peers that a grand capital city was necessary, especially when he proposed building an entirely new city inspired by Rome that would literally be hacked out of a forest, farmlands, and bogs. But Washington understood that it was not simply a matter of building a city. The general and his fellow framers were proposing an entirely new form of government based on radical ideas whereby the people would lead. Thus, the location and design of the capital mattered. It would shape the development of the nation politically and economically. Building the capital would therefore be an exercise in building the republic. The city Washington envisioned and the nation he helped father would grow up together. So uh, with that, Washington wanted a strong national government. Uh, secondly, he wanted to unite the people, as you see on the screen here, with the national character. If you could take a time machine and go back to 1776 or 1787 and meet Thomas Jefferson and ask him about his nation, he would say Virginia. If you could go back and meet Ben Franklin, he would say Pennsylvania. So we lacked this sense of an American identity or a national character. We were not united. Washington was disturbed to see that in the years after the revolution, that glue, that revolutionary spirit that held us together had utterly collapsed and we were in disunion and uh, uh, bickering with one another. Um, he was also concerned that this weak government lacked any credibility. Therefore, he figured it would not long endure. Also, our government lacked credibility in the eyes of Europe, who saw us as a cultural backwater. So how do we answer all those concerns? Washington said, we need a great and glorious capital city, a city for the ages, he said, that will imbue us with a sense of nationhood. It will unite the factions, unite the North and South. It will strengthen the government, give us credibility in the eyes of Europe and so on. Now, there were two other things that factored in. One was the Potomac River. Of course, the capital sits uh, on the shores of the Potomac and Washington's Mount Vernon home overlooks the Potomac. Washington loved the Potomac River. As a young man, he sailed, uh, paddled and canoed almost the length of the river and all of its uh, tributaries. Uh, he mapped out the river. In fact, some of the framers kind of joked about Washington, saying that he had Potomac fever. Washington, who was not well-traveled, once said that the Potomac is the greatest river in the world. He even went so far as to naively say it was grander than the Thames, the Seine, the Rhine, and the Danube all put together, which is silly. And a lot of the framers got a kick out of that. But secondly, um, Washington realized um, we, we needed to build the capital by a river. This is why the Hudson, the Susquehanna, all these rivers were under consideration. Primitive transportation, rudimentary communication, we needed a river. So the Potomac was in the running. Thirdly, we needed to build the capital with access to the ocean. Trade was so important. The Potomac gives us access to the Chesapeake, which gives us access to the ocean. So check, check, check. Washington was also keen on Western expansion. He figured we would move westward. And the Potomac spread, it's, it's uh, the headwaters of the Potomac go all the way uh, westward. Uh, and then from the westward reaches of the Potomac, it's connected by roads out to what is present day West Virginia, Pittsburgh, and the Ohio Territory. In fact, Washington had surveyed or created uh, some of those uh, uh, roads. And because everybody was bickering over, over a capital, the Potomac connected Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, and Virginia, uh, three of the most uh, important uh, states. So where did Washington get these ideas for this grand vision of a great capital city uh, and so forth? It came from a couple stories. Very quickly, on the top of the screen is what is known as the Jumonville Affair. This is in May of 1754. So the problem for the British, and Washington was a colonial aide in 1754, the problem for the British is the French were muscling in into what is today Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. So um, Washington was given by the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, a small group of men and a few Indian allies to go out and figure out what were the French up to. 
So Washington went out there and his Indian scout, known as Chief Tanagrison, nicknamed the Half King, finds the French at just before dawn. They can smell the bacon, uh, the, the coffee uh, roasting, and they can hear the sounds of an army waking up. There's a small group of French, as you can see from the picture above in a glen in a little ravine. Washington and his men and Indian allies surround them. Now, Washington was supposed to just see what they were doing, but he gave the order to fire. They fired down on the French like shooting fish in a barrel, kill several of the French, the French surrender. Uh, now, the leader was Jumonville. Now, if, if a gentleman surrenders to you, if I surrender to Sarah, for example, I present Sarah with my sword. Sarah would then um, break open a bottle of fine wine or champagne, and we would parlay. We would speak in French, and she would treat me as a gentleman. Washington was only 22, uneducated, untraveled, and knew none of this. He has Jumonville gagged and tied, and the French are bickering and shocked by this, uh, but Washington doesn't parlay vous. Um, what happens is Chief, Chief Tanagrison, Washington's aide, had had some earlier run-ins with the same French and their Indian allies, so he puts a tomahawk in Jumonville's head. He kills Jumonville. It turns out Jumonville was an aristocrat, and get this, a diplomat. He was leading a peace party, and Washington kills a peace party. The anger over this is one of the contributing factors to starting the French and Indian Wars. Washington screw up. 65 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, a shot was fired that would start the French and Indian Wars. Bottom of the screen. So that was May of 1754. That July, Washington leads an army of a few hundred back to the same territory. Why? The French were then seizing and building forts in Western Pennsylvania and the Ohio Territory. Washington's job is simply to tell them not to do it uh, or else. Washington goes out and uh, his Indian scouts report that a massive French army is marching his way. So Washington orders the construction of a fort. You can see a replica of this today in the, near the same spot. Not much of a fort, is it? It's quite embarrassing, in fact. Uh, Washington builds it in the low ground in a bog and swamp. The French can just get behind trees in the high ground and circle Washington. You know that the cardinal rule of military history is what? The high ground carries the battles. So Washington's men are protesting bitterly, but he foolishly, at age 22, thinks he knows what he's doing and builds this fort. The French are firing down on Washington, just picking off his men. It starts to rain. Now Washington's army is up to their ears in, in, in a bog and swamp, and Washington has no excuse but to surrender. When he surrenders to the French officer, it turns out, by coincidence, the French officer is Jumonville's brother. He tells Washington to sign this piece of paper. Washington doesn't read French. What Washington signs in his admit is an admission of guilt that he started the French and Indian War and assassinated a diplomat. So Washington is embarrassed. What he learns is he's hot-headed, he's impulsive, and he thinks he knows more than he knows. So Washington would become a dramatically different man after this, would, would be much calmer, would take his time in making decisions, always surround himself with impressive people and listen. Washington resigns his military commission rather than getting fired. Shortly thereafter, though, something else happens. Washington is enamored by an older wealthy neighbor named Sally Carey Fairfax. Sally was beautiful, smart, popular, flirtatious. Uh, George is a poorly educated, poorly traveled, big gangly teenager who is just smitten by Sally. She married uh, Lord Fairfax, as in Fairfax County, Fairfax, Virginia, everyone. And um, what happens is um, the man sitting there grimacing in pain, that's General Sir Edward Braddock. Braddock and a massive army in 1755, one year later after Washington's mistakes, shows up in Williamsburg. He's going to march on um, the French and end this very quickly. Now, Braddock is dashing. All the ladies like him. He's not much of a general. Ben Franklin wrote disparagingly that Braddock was arrogant and didn't know what he was talking about, which would soon prove to be true. So Sally Carey Fairfax, the woman that George is enamored with, she wants to go to Williamsburg for this grand ball that is being hosted in Braddock's honor. Problem is Sally's husband is traveling, so she asks George 
to escort her to the Williamsburg Gala. George says yes immediately. He's quite smitten with Sally. When George is in Williamsburg, here's what he sees. All the women are smitten by Braddock, including Sally. It's the uniform. George misses being in uniform. He immediately, when he sees Sally fawning over Braddock, he re-enlists as one of Braddock's aides. So Braddock and a young George Washington, now 23, head out west. Braddock marches his army right into a trap. The French and Indians are annihilating the British army. Braddock and virtually every officer is shot. Braddock is mortally wounded and dies. The army is being routed. Uh, they're dropping by the hundreds. That's when George Washington becomes George Washington. He mounts a horse uh, and distracts the, the French. Uh, takes their fire. He has multiple bullet holes through his jacket. He kills an Indian with his bare hands. He organizes a retreat. Uh, Braddock would die and Washington would ride on horseback at the head of the army back to Pennsylvania and Virginia. Washington realizes at that moment that he's capable of greatness. He's calm under fire and his ambition begins to burn and burn. All these things factor into Washington becoming the person that he would uh, uh, soon become in the capital city. Um, at the end of the Revolutionary War, there's two events that absolutely influence Washington's thinking on a capital city. Here's the first one, the Newburgh Conspiracy. So the main battle that basically ends the Revolutionary War is Yorktown. This is October 1781, when Washington and his army rout uh, Lord Cornwallis and a massive British army. That's the big W, the big victory Washington had been waiting for. Now, here's what happened. After October of 1781, there's not another battle in the end of the war. That's the last major conflict. What we enter is what I call the Cold War of the Revolution. The British hunker down in New York City. Washington travels a little bit north uh, on the Hudson uh, near what is today West Point and FDR's presidential library. And for two years, the two armies just hunker down. There's a new threat, not war, a new threat, boredom, boredom. The armies aren't paid, they're hungry, they miss their farms, and a bored, angry army organizes a mutiny in March of 1783 as the war is ending, as we're, we're, we're ready to, to, to seize victory. Washington's army is ready to mutiny. His own officers inside his Newburgh headquarters are planning to overthrow Washington and march on Congress. We're so close to victory and they're gonna snatch defeat. Um, what Washington says, he realizes things are bad. He writes and says, you know, the patience, the fortitude, the long and great sufferings of this army are unexampled in history, but there's an end to all things. He says, as you can see in the middle quote, the temper of the army is much soured. They become more irritable than any period since the war began. And then Washington reminds Congress and his advisors, the army have swords in their hands. And you know enough about history. In other words, they're ready to uh, march. Uh, so Washington allows the army to gather in mid-March uh, in a place called the Temple, which was a large building in his Newburgh headquarters. Washington allows them to gather and he doesn't show up. Why? He wants them to show their hand. General Horatio Gates and others, who are the mutineers? Um, once he knows that happens, he calls for a meeting of everyone. Now, Washington is so punctual, you can set a clock on it. He is absolutely punctual, but he arrives late. Why? For dramatic and theatrical purposes. Washington enters from the back of the room. That requires everyone to do what? Turn around and look at him. He has everyone's attention. He approaches the front of the stage where Gates and the mutineers are. Washington, Washington orders them to surrender the stage. And then two things happen. One, he explodes, he's volcanic, you know, roaring. How inconsistent with the rules of propriety, how unmilitary, how subversive of all order and discipline. He goes on about the army turning against itself at the final moment. My God, Washington yells. Once he has the attention of everybody, then the second thing happens. Washington quiets down. Now, this picture here from history is not accurate. It would have been a massive building filled with people. But what is accurate 
is the men crying, unable to look at Washington and Washington wearing glasses. So what happens secondly, Washington quiets down and is standing on stage with a look of disgust. After quite a moment of silence, where he has everyone's attention, he reaches in his pocket and pulls out a letter. He says, I wanna read for you a letter from Congressman Jones of Virginia, but Washington can't see the letter. He's grown old, he needs glasses. No one had ever seen Washington wear glasses. He then says to them a great line, gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles for I've not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. Washington puts on the glasses. It's a moment to take in. Then he takes off the glasses and puts away the speech and says, I only wanna to talk to you from the heart. He says, I ask only that you give one more distinguished proof of unexampled patriotism and patient virtue and stand together on principle. Well, after that, Washington sheds a tear and walks off the stage. That's when General um, Knox, his, his trusted a friend, approaches everyone and asks them to sign a letter of loyalty to Washington and nation and the nation. The men are in tears. They approach and sign quickly. What a brilliant and theatrical way to put down the mutiny. Washington set the whole thing up like a play, theatrics, and he put down the mutiny. However, after that March in June, there was a second mutiny, not unlike January 6th, the insurrection against the Capitol. A bunch of angry uh, veterans and drunks from Philadelphia pour out into the streets. They surround the building you now know as Independence Hall. They're going to bust in the windows and attack uh, our legislative leaders. The legislative leaders are panicked. They wanna call out the army. They call on Washington. When Washington arrives, rather than arrest people, rather than have them hanged and prosecuted, Washington pardons them, forgives them, and tells them to go home. But after this, what Washington realizes is this nation is not going to endure. We had two near mutinies that almost ended the Republic as it was being born. Washington knows we need a stronger government. We need a sense of national unity. We need, in short, a great and glorious capital to bring people together. So the day the war ended, there's a civil vacuum. We kicked the British out, but here's the kicker. We needed the British. When they left, there go all the physicians, architects, lawyers, bankers, investors, mercantilism. We were natural resource rich, but the British manufactured and sold back the products to us. What are we going to do now? We had huge debts, our veterans were unpaid, our currency was worthless, and we were at one another's throats. You could almost hear the people saying, what happens next? So Washington resigns and, and uh, has what is his circular letter to the states. He sends a letter that goes around to legislative leaders who read it in all the states. It's published by the newspapers. And here you can see the beginning, the formation of Washington's vision for a strong nation, unite us around the principle of American identity uh, and a glorious national capital. Uh, so here's the kicker. Uh, from 19, excuse me, from 1775, when the revolution started, until 1800, we go a quarter of a century without a capital city, without a permanent site for the seat of government. There were over 30 cities proposed. Here's a partial list for you. From Hartford uh, and New Haven in Connecticut to Wilmington and Delaware and so on. The problem was parochialism. Everyone wanted their city to be the capital or a city in their states. We fought for 30 years to find a seat of government. That's no way to start a nation. And Washington was quite uh, alarmed by it. Not only did we not have a capital city, but we didn't have a functioning government. Under the Articles of Confederation, we could not raise revenues, raise taxes. We could not soldier or field an army. We couldn't pay back our debts to the European allies. Uh, it was utterly ineffectual. One branch of government, a unicameral legislature, that's it. You know, so it was so contentious that it almost tore the government apart. Washington said these debates were the most vicious debates of the founding era. You know, uh, they even proposed at one point, even Ben Franklin, in a name of compromise, maybe we need multiple capital cities. So the joke became, since Congress was so unpopular, 
we should build a Trojan horse, pile the Congress in it, and at night sneak it from city to city, and then the Congress would get out in the morning and quick do their business, and then they'd wheel the horse to the next city. So there's where we were. There were headlines in newspapers <coughs> in the post-revolutionary period screaming out in bold letters, have we fought for this? So here you can see a couple of quotes from Washington that the idea of picking a capital was the most intense and explosive debate of the entire period. Uh, selecting the seat of government, Washington said, is pregnant with difficulty. Um, he was worried that we would have disunion. Uh, you see factions emerging. You see a, a federalist versus anti-federalist. Uh, you see a north versus south, an eastern versus western, all these factions, and this is the concern. Finally, the straw that broke, broke the camel's back was in August of 1786, Shays' Rebellion. Not unlike uh, January 6th at the Capitol, angry Americans under the name of being patriots pick up guns and pitchforks and march on government buildings. They're burning buildings, they're looting, they're uh, stealing up from armories and arming themselves, they're tar and feathering leaders. Washington announces, as you can see on the screen, we have errors to correct. He asks Hamilton to call for a convention. We have got to reform and improve this situation. They gather at the first convention in Annapolis in Maryland. Here's the problem. Only a handful of states show up. What do they do? Bicker and yell and walk out. A complete embarrassment. But Washington doesn't give up. He encourages other framers, let's get together the following summer, 1787, in Philadelphia. They were hoping maybe the luck of Philadelphia lightning would strike twice, so the Constitutional Convention. There is what I call the other founding debate. Uh, of all the debates, the three-fifths clause, slavery, the presidency, the electoral college, the worst debate was the, uh, where do we put a capital? And that was the one debate that was not resolved during the Constitutional Convention. We come out of the convention with no capital city. Where should it be? the location, the design of it, uh, how to pay for it and build it. Unfortunately, because we ran out of money, we'd have to rely on slave labor. Um, and slaves worked some of the worst conditions of the building of the Capitol. They were in the quarries. Could you imagine quarrying tons of rock and limestone without bulldozers and modern uh, technology? Doing it with a pick and a shovel and an ax? Uh, brutal conditions and people uh, died as a result of it. We also didn't have architects. So Washington had to hire Europeans and bring in immigrant labor to build our capital city. So European immigrant labor and uh, slaves built the capital city. Michelle Obama was right when she said as much a couple of years ago. Here's the one thing that did come out of the Constitutional Convention. Um, the capital would be 10 miles square. Now that's 100 miles, everybody. That is an enormous capital. You're talking about a city greater than Paris and London at the time uh, for a little backwater like the US, uh, but they still didn't know where these 10 miles square would be. Uh, what they did want is what we have to today. The framers, the Congress was worried from that mutiny, those two mutinies I talked about earlier, the one in Philadelphia in particular, if the capital is within a city, the city can govern the capital and therefore federal government will be beholden to a city. Or if the federal city is in a state, it will be beholden to a state. So what they proposed was a federal district, what they originally called a federal enclave, which would eventually be named for Christopher Columbus and the District of Columbia. Um, so um, that way, if, if we have the capital in a federal district, it's not beholden to any city or state. So to the present day in DC, we have a mayor, we have a city council, but in DC, uh, the Congress, the US Congress determines the budget and governs the District of Columbia. That way they would never again be held captive. Okay, so um, in 1789, when Washington is inaugurated, it was supposed to be March 4th, but he didn't show up and have his inaugural until April 30th. Why? Poor communication, poor transportation, uh, nobody was arriving. And Martha Washington even missed uh, the inaugural. I guess she was still getting dressed, right? Uh, so she was late arriving. Um, 
So they gather in New York City. The deal is let's have New York City be the interim capital, and then we'll figure out where on earth to put the capital. So on the, on the left, you can see Federal Hall right there on Wall Street, right down the street from Sarah and Allie and Francis Tavern, uh, right near Trinity Church, where all the great founders in Hamilton are buried. So right down the street. Uh, that's why Washington often went to drink and eat, as other uh, uh, founders did at Francis Tavern. Uh, his White House, if you will, his presidential home is there on the lower right. That's uh, his Cherry Tr Street mansion. The problem with New York City is no one like New York City. Here's a quote from Jefferson. I suppose it's relevant to today, given the weather you're having. Jefferson said of New York City, spring and fall, they never have. As far as I can learn, they have 10 months of winter, two of summer. Uh, Fisher Ames, uh, who was a real hoot of a congressman from Massachusetts, he said he longed for the air and company of Springfield. He said, New York City is overrun by hogs, dogs, and garbage. So no one liked New York City. The question was, where do we move the capital? And that was decided at a dinner party. I call it the second most famous dinner in history. I guess after the uh, Last Supper. <laughs> I once called it the most famous dinner in history. And years ago, someone in the audience called me out and said, no, uh, the Last Supper with the disciples was the most famous. So we'll go with the second. So there's two big debates swirling, many, but two primarily. One, where do we put the capital? Two, what do we do about the debt? Debt assumption, as it was called. We're in massive debt. How do we pay it back? So um, you have two big splits on this issue. The Southerners and the Anti-Federalists, who would be today's Republicans, backed by Jefferson, they want the capital in the South. And they're not willing to negotiate or compromise or cooperate. Sounds like today. Capital's in the South or we walk. The Northerners and Hamilton and the Federalists, they want the capital in the North or at least in a city or at least a river by an, an ocean. Uh, the Southerners and Jefferson, they want a very small, what they call a federal town, a handful of one-story brick buildings with fields in between them. Why? They want state, the states to be supreme. They want to keep slavery. So the weaker and smaller the capital, and if it's in the South, they can keep their abysmal institution of slavery and have a weak government where they, the slave owners, are in charge. The Federalists in Washington and Hamilton, they want a great, glorious capital city to unite everybody. And the South refuses to pay their debts. We're not paying a penny. The North wants to pay their debts. So the problem for Jefferson is that as they rap in the musical Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton is Washington's right-hand man. So, um, and I gave a speech about this for Francis Tavern a couple of uh, weeks or months ago. Um, so um, on June 19th, 1790, Jefferson is outside of Washington's home. He sees Hamilton come out dejected. Hamilton and Washington had a huge fight and they're arguing. Jefferson realizes it's time to strike. So the next night on June 20th, he has a dinner party. It's uh, Jefferson and Madison on their side, and they invite Hamilton. Jefferson feels we can now dupe Hamilton and get everything we want, the capital in the South, a small capital, and uh, no paying back the debt. Hamilton goes to the dinner party. Here's what happens, everyone. Hamilton plays Jefferson like a guitar, plays him like a fool. Hamilton pretends to give up everything Jefferson wants, but Hamilton gets everything he wants. Number one, where should the capital be? Jefferson says it's in the South or we don't talk, we don't negotiate. Hamilton says, okay, you can have it in the South. But here's what Jefferson didn't know. Hamilton had already talked with Washington and Hamilton knew that Washington was gonna put it next to the Potomac in Virginia. Secondly, the debt. Jefferson says, we're not paying the debt. Uh, the South will not pay, Virginia will not pay. Hamilton shockingly says, okay, you don't have to pay back the debt. Now, how on earth are they gonna pay the debt? Here's what Jefferson didn't think of. And now in order to pay the debt, we need the federal government to assume the debt. We need a bank, we need a strong treasury. Who was the treasury secretary? Uh, Hamilton. So Hamilton now gets his bank, his treasury, and he wants a strong federal government we now need a big, strong federal government to pay back the debt. So Jefferson walked right into Hamilton's trap. 
Ben Jefferson says we should have a very democratic process. What should the Capitol look like? How about this? Why don't we have a design contest and invite the people to submit designs? I'll chair the committee that picks the winning design, Jefferson says. Hamilton goes, okay. Jefferson can't believe it. So what Jefferson appears to do is he appears to write his own architectural design for a little one-story brick building in a small federal town. He submits it anonymously, then he as chair of the committee picks that for the Capitol. What Jefferson didn't know was when they hand it to Washington, Washington looks at it and goes, nope, we're gonna rebuild Rome, a giant glorious Capitol. So Jefferson is duped. He calls it the worst political moment of his life. Washington gets whatever he wants. Hamilton gets whatever he wants. The Residence Act of 1790 I have on the screen here. This is the vote to locate the capital city in Washington. Here's the deal. They would agree to have the uh, capital in New York City for a few months. Then for nine years, it would be in Philadelphia. They gave the North a bone. They threw a bone to Pennsylvania, the most important state, and Philly, the most important city. And then they would build for 10 years a capital where it is today in the city of Washington. Now, when it came up for a vote, it was four votes shy. Here's where you see Washington's political prowess. Washington tells Madison, call for another vote immediately. Madison and Hamilton said, are you nuts? We need to wait. We need to get votes. Washington says, do it right away. Washington visits, they're four votes shy. Washington visits four senators and flips all four of them. They re-vote and they got it by four votes. Could you imagine Washington, this mountain of a man with his uh, charisma walking into an office of a senator and saying, son, I need you to do a favor for me. You know that they did it. So that's how we got the Capitol where it was. Uh, hang on, let me advance my slide. Um, so Washington not only picks the location, Washington surveys the grounds, Washington uh, gets the votes, Washington hires the architects. Here's the architect that designs the Capitol, L'Enfant, uh, uh, Pierre Charles L'Enfant. He would later change his name to Peter in the US. Um, but uh, L'Enfant is a classically trained Frenchman who fought with Washington during the Revolutionary War. He shares Washington's vision of Rome. L'Enfant wants Romanesque grand boulevards that intersect in big squares with public memorials and monuments everywhere. Isn't that our city? So that's what L'Enfant designs. Here's the design and you all recognize this. Look at the middle of the screen. See where my cursor is? That's the federal, that's the Capitol Mall right there. So that's L'Enfant's design. Unfortunately, L'Enfant is a diva. He's a prima donna. He angers everyone and he has to be fired. L'Enfant claims he quit. He quit as he was being fired is the technical uh, answer to the question. But his plan lives on and that's the plan they designed. Who's gonna build the White House? They have a design contest. Washington doesn't like any of the designs, so he puts it on ice, puts it on hold. He hears about this guy, James Hoban, another immigrant from Ireland this time, who had designed buildings in Charleston, South Carolina. Washington visits the buildings, loves them, and invites Hoban to submit his design. Hoban does. Washington hires Hoban on the spot. Here's the design for the White House. Looks familiar, everybody? on the right, except for the roof. Um, and on the left, Hoban even used that French-inspired oval offices, oval rooms, which are famous and a part of the building today. Um, in closing, one of the early uh, proposals was to name the city Washingtonopolis. Uh, I kind of like it actually, but it's Washington named for George today. It's part of Washington's great legacy. Other framers wrote, that in the last decade of his life, this was Washington's obsession. It was his passion. He devoted more time to the Capitol than anything else. To look at all the problems we had, no credibility in the eyes of Europe, no credibility as a weak government. We were not united. We had no American identity and we didn't have a spirit of, of, of nationhood. For all those reasons, Washington says we build a grand Capitol, it'll resolve everything. We put it equidistance between the north and the south. We put it on a river that connects with the west, and then the east gives us access to the ocean, and that's Washington's vision. We get the capital city. His final words before he passed were, "'Tis well, 
In the final days of his life, he had made a trip to see the progress of his city. He had one of his commissioners, he hired the commissioners for the city, come and give him an update. And he was having letters written and exchanged with the people that were in the capital city overseeing it. This was Washington's pet project. And thank goodness we have this glorious city today. And we, we have George to thank for it. There's a copy of the book, uh, which was just released, Georgetown University Press. It's available anywhere books are sold, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, through Francis Tavern and so forth. Thank you everyone. And I'm happy to take any questions. Great, great, thank you. That was really interesting. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to our communications and marketing manager, Ali Delianis, who is going to moderate our Q&A. If you have any questions, you can drop them in the chat now. Okay, have at me. All right, thank you so much, Robert. Uh, that was a fantastic presentation. Um, I think one of the first questions that I have is what was the benefit to having the capital in your city other than just pride of, I love my city, why would you Good. want it there? Good, so after the Revolutionary War, the economy collapsed. We spent years fighting the war. Wars always produced debts. Uh, the money, the currency was worthless. Uh, we couldn't pay back our European creditors, so there was no loans coming in. Uh, the British had all the bankers, architects, they left, so our economy was destitute. Everyone knew that if the capital was in your city or your state, businesses would pop up. The entire federal government and military would move to your city or state. Congress would come to your city or state. They would eat, they would board there, they would shop there. So they knew this would be an economic windfall. Therefore, that's why you had over 30 locations and no one would agree to any location except their own uh, city because they knew it'd be a great economic boost. Uh, to their communities. Good question. That, uh, that makes perfect sense. Um, so why did they choose New York City to be the interim capital if everyone hated it so much? Good. Hamilton used his influence. Hamilton was from the island of Nevis or Nevis and, and also lived in St. Croix in the then called West Indies, but he moved to New York. Uh, New York, remember, was the financial hub. Here's one of the unique things about the United States. It, take London take Paris. The capital cities were always the cultural centers, the economic centers, the financial centers, not in the U.S. You had three cities. You had Boston, you had Philadelphia, you had New York. Uh, so power is diffused and dispersed among several cities. New York was one of the biggest, most powerful cities. Hamilton lived there. New York City had Federal Hall. It had large buildings. It had enough um, uh, restaurants and uh, taverns like Francis Tavern, that it could accommodate everyone. Very few cities could accommodate everyone. So they decided New York City, but again, no one liked it. And it would only be the capital for a little less than a year while they figured things out. So it started in New York City. Good, another good question. So when was the name of the capital officially settled on? And was it that before Washington's death? Yeah. So they were talking about the entire district would be the federal enclave. Then they were calling it the federal district. Uh, then it became an honor of Columbus, as I said, uh, Columbia. Um, in terms of the actual city, uh, Washington always dismissed this. One of those, no, no, don't name it after me. But you know, while he's going like this with the other hand, right? Um, everyone knew before they even announced it, it would be named for Washington. There was just no question about it. They were floating Washingtonopolis as a, as a name that might give it a little bit of more majesty and credibility. Uh, when, when John Adams moved into the city, uh, as I said, November 1, 1800, it was no city at all. There were a handful of buildings. Adams uh, complained that there was one theater and it later closed. Uh, there weren't enough places for Congress to stay, uh, not enough places to eat. Uh, the White House had a total of six rooms completed. It was drafty. There was plaster on the walls. It reeked of plaster. It was leaking from the roof. The grounds were a sea of mud. All day long, people sawing and hammering. So it wasn't the glorious city that we know today. Adams uh, was there without his wife. He wrote cryptic cryptically to Abigail. He knew she would hate it, and it was a mess. He wrote, quote unquote, the city is in a state to be habitable. And now we request your company. So understating. 
Abigail showed up and could not stand the White House or the city. She was also disturbed because everywhere she looked, slaves, slave labor, which Abigail and John as abolitionists like Hamilton, John Jay and Franklin were deeply disturbed uh, to uh, see that. Abigail was also upset there was no place to hang her laundry. She used the East Room uh, to hang her, uh, her uh, laundry. So it wasn't the city of today. They all knew it would be named for George and it was informally named for George. And then once he died, it became an official part of the city. So uh, yeah, everybody knew uh, it was George's project and it would be named for him. Although, you know, I don't know about you, Ali and Sarah, I kind of like Washingtonopolis in a nerdy way. So, all right. I'm from Washington state, so I'm gonna start calling it Washingtonopolis now. There you go. Okay. <laughs> I'll bring it back. I'll bring it back. Um, when they were first designing plans for the White House specifically, what did they envision it would be used for besides just being the president's residence? Good. So all along Washington's plan was it would be the president's residence, but it would also be used for entertaining. It would be the people's house and a symbolic building. So Washington wanted it to have majesty, uh, glory, because it would be a symbolic building of the powerful president and the nation. What Washington wanted was marble. Here's the problem. We had no money. We couldn't afford marble. They used limestone. They ran out of that. So they used brick. Washington hated the idea of brick. So what they did is they got a white limestone plaster and they covered it all, which gave it the folk, the fake or faux appearance of marble. Uh, and, and that's why it was the White House eventually. It was nicknamed early on. In 1901, they officially, under Teddy Roosevelt, started calling it the White House. So Washington uh, had that fake exterior. He wanted it to be a symbol. When Washington was uh, in New York City and in Philadelphia, he was hosting and entertaining veterans and diplomats. There was no room in the house, none whatsoever. So Washington wanted the White House to be gigantic with large rooms so that he could use it to host ceremonial events. Remember, everybody, the political is the social and the social is the political. Rarely does Congress make up their mind on the floor of the House after a debate. Those decisions are made days earlier over dinner and drinks. So Washington clearly saw this as a social center, as a symbolic building to represent the government and this new experiment in democracy, uh, as well as the residence of the president. And you know, the White House has been the people's house ever since then. It's our house. Uh, just as the Capitol is our temple of liberty and democracy and freedom, which is one of the many reasons why it was so, so unnerving and appalling to watch these uh, uh, fake patriots do what they did to the building uh, in January. So, yeah. Okay. Um, do we know who first came up with the idea that the Capitol city should be 10 miles square? And why do we think it caught on? Yeah. So, um, Washington was proposing a grand and glorious capital city from the beginning. The Federalists, Hamilton and others, were backing him on it. Uh, Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans, then the Anti-Federalists, the Southerners wanted that small federal town. So uh, the South was, was not happy at all at Ten Miles Square. The original proposal appears to have been for the following reason, Ali, to negotiate. If you ask for Ten Miles Square, you can negotiate way down to something that's still bigger than the federal town. I don't think Washington or anybody really thought we would have a capital city 100 miles. Now, the current capital city is a fraction of this size. It's not 100 miles. Um, and uh, in fact, um, Virginia and Maryland ceded lands that would become the capital. Virginia wanted the capital. Maryland wanted the capital. They both shared the Potomac. But what Maryland realized was Virginia was the home of Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Mason. Virginia might beat them out. So Maryland and Virginia ceded lands and agreed to cooperate together. If they work together in getting the capital, and the, the District of Columbia now straddles what used to be Maryland and Virginia, if they work together, they could defeat Philadelphia, New York, and the cities in the North. That's why they work together. But much of the original land they donated to make up this 10-mile square, it was eventually taken back. So uh, we never have achieved this gigantic capital, this, you know, way over the top vision of Washington. It's, uh, it's but a fraction of uh, what they originally envisioned. 
So um, talking a lot about, um, we, we spoke a lot about the differences uh, between Jefferson and Hamilton and who wanted big government, wanted larger state governments. Um, did, do we know if Washington, is there any evidence that Washington opposed the democratic form of government that we have today? Okay, so both Washington and Hamilton and the Federalists, uh, Ben Franklin, John Jay, uh, John Adams, so uh, they were not anti-democratic. They would support a republic is what we technically have, uh, but they supported the ideas of democracy. What Washington wanted was a strong government and a strong executive because of all the things I just said in the speech, they were, he was worried that the nation would collapse, wouldn't have credibility. Now, Hamilton had a bit of a Hobbesian view, uh, the British philosopher Hobbes, that the nature of humanity was nasty and brutish. We, we couldn't be trusted. Hamilton was less likely to support democracy. He thought we would have what you know was oftentimes called the mobocracy, right? But he didn't oppose democracy. He just wanted checks and balances, limits, rules. Um, Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists, uh, the Southerners, they wanted government at the local and state level. Uh, it's not that they really even trusted it. They just wanted themselves, the aristocratic slave owners, to keep their abysmal institution and be in charge. Um, the framers were really afraid of two things, Ali, and this is crystal clear in the Federalist Papers, their notes from the Constitutional Convention. They were afraid of mobs. They were afraid of mobs taking the, you know, Whiskey Rebellion, Shays Rebellion, the Philadelphia Mutiny, the Newburgh Conspiracy, the things I just talked about. They were afraid of mobs. Uh, they, they didn't think that people could be governed. This is part of the Electoral College. The second thing they were afraid of was that a corrupt dictator would become president, a man without principles or ethics. Washington always worried about, quote unquote, conduct unbecoming of a chief magistrate. Um, uh, Hamilton worried about the public trust being violated. Um, uh, so the way to control a corrupt dictator as president uh, who shreds the rule of law and constitution and the way to, to control mobs was to have all these checks and balances and limits on power and levels of government. You know, the, 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 the courts check everyone, the House checks the Senate, the Congress checks the president, the president checks the Congress, the states check the feds. So this convoluted system of checks and balances that we have today. So I think the framers would be concerned with um, uh, the uh, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And I think they'd be concerned by the previous president's uh, behavior and some of the attacks uh, uh, on um, the rule of law, uh, constitutionalism, weakening of American institutions, uh, weakening of the checks and balances, namely uh, assaults on uh, uh, whistleblowers, auditors, inspectors general, and so forth and so on. So that's what they were. They, Washington wasn't anti-democratic. They were just worried about mobs. And we're just about out of time. So this is going to be my last question. Uh, what was your favorite thing that you discovered while you were doing research for this book? So the funniest thing was that, you know, this idea of building a Trojan horse and hiding Congress in it, moving it around the cities at night. And everybody used to joke about that. Um, I knew Washington was more complicated than the simplistic monolithic depiction in history books. I knew he was a political player. I knew he was a visionary, but what I liked the most was the idea that Washington is the only one of the framers who's not well-traveled, well-educated, yet he was the one that came up with the idea. And it really shows his innovation and his creativity. You know, his farms at Mount Vernon, he, he was working on aquaculture. He was growing tropical fruit uh, inside in, in like greenhouses. He was planting crops that shouldn't have grown in Virginia and using new experimental techniques. George Washington was a real innovator and really creative. Again, think of the Revolutionary War. He had to make it up on the fly. He was flying by the seat of his pants, right? Uh, but he was creative and innovative. Article two of the Constitution is about the presidents. Article one, the Congress, three, the judiciary of seven. Article two says almost nothing about the presidency. Washington, through his every action and inaction, everything he said and didn't say is literally carving out precedents. He was making it up on the spot. 
So it does it doesn't surprise me when I think deeply about it that Washington was such a visionary and he alone had this incredible and complicated vision for this grand Roman capital that would resolve all these half dozen problems that we were facing. But I just to the extent of it, uh, I knew about it, but I was surprised at the extent of him being a visionary, because, uh, again, we just don't apply that 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 temperament, that trait, uh, that aspect of Washington's personality uh, to him. So uh, yeah, it was a real pleasure to um, uh, to put this together. And I want to thank um, uh, both of you and the entire staff at Francis Tavern. Mostly, I want to thank all of you for enduring this Arctic blast and winter and and logging on and uh, uh, listening to this. Thank you. And uh, be sure to visit Francis Tavern and support them and their programs. And I hope to see all of you maybe on Zoom, but hopefully in person at Francis Tavern. Uh, so uh, Alex and Isabella and Claire and Dylan and all my friends and Wendy and Andy, thank you, everybody. Uh, peace. Thank you. Thank you, Robert, um, both for the great presentation and also for the shout out. Yes, you can if you are in New York or the surrounding area, then you can travel to the city. You can visit Francis Tavern. You can purchase your tickets online in advance to make sure there is a spot for you. We are at reduced capacity. Thank you all for your great questions and for joining us for another wonderful evening lecture. Uh, as I said, this has been recorded. So if you wanna listen again, or if you wanna share it with someone, it'll be on our website in the next week. Thank and you. it's cold weather. They have great hot apple cider there. So there's your last plug. So go get some and warm up. Thanks everybody. Yes. You can also go to the restaurant. Indoor dining is back a little bit. So you don't have to sit outside. Um, thank you to those of you who have donated. You are helping us keep our programs going. If you wish to make a donation, you can visit francistavernmuseum.org and you'll be able to find all the information there. On that website, you can also sign up for our mailing list. Keep up to date with all of our programs. You can follow us on social media. Uh, and hopefully we will see you all at our next lecture. The next one's coming up on March 11th. You can sign up on the website. Hopefully we will see you there. And hopefully we will see you in person sooner rather than later. So that being said, have a wonderful evening, everybody.